Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Brian Pallister's Oscar-worthy performance about lockdowns, the importance of vaccine choice, and people dying on waiting lists in Canada. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, still an essential service in the Dominion of Canada, at least for the time being. I think I used that joke on Monday, but it's not a joke at this point. you got to keep clarifying that you are essential and make sure you are, because all of a sudden you're going to find that the lockdown police, and the lockdown police are actually the politicians, more on that later, that they are out to get you pretty much no matter what. I've seen stories from people in Manitoba about like just pretty much anything and everything being declared non-essential, including at one store, sweaters. Their interpretation I had read on Twitter was that sweaters were non-essential, so they were uh, cordoned off and you couldn't get them, which I've never been to Manitoba in the winter, but from everything I've understood, sweaters are are pretty darn essential there. I'm going to say something that has probably never been said in the history of the world before, which is I think Brian Palace is the most important thing right now. And with all due respect to people in Manitoba, the premier right now is so high on his horse, it's a wonder he can see anything, which is pretty rare for him, given that he's already, I think, like 6'8 or something. But I want to play this clip, and it's going to be a couple of minutes, but I've already shrunk it down here because the original was four minutes and there was a lot to it. But I want you to hear... I'll just talk about it on the other side. I want you to hear what Brian Pallister said in his address to the province this week. Know this about me. I did not get into politics for the adulation. I got into politics to do the right thing. Try to save my town. Try to help people. I do what I believe is right. I do what I believe is necessary. This is who you need right now. I am that person. I will do what I believe is right. And right now we need to save lives. If you don't think that COVID's real, right now you're an idiot. You need to understand that we're all in this together. You cannot fail to understand this. Stay apart. So I'm the guy who has to tell you to stay apart at Christmas and in the holiday season you celebrate with your faith or without your faith, that you celebrate with normally with friends and with family, that where you share memories and build memories, I'm that guy. And I'll say that because it will keep you safe. I'm the guy who's stealing Christmas to keep you safe. Because you need to do this now. You need to do the right thing. Because next year, we'll have lots to celebrate. And we'll celebrate this year if we do the right thing this year. You don't need to like me. I hope in years to come, you might respect me for having the guts to tell you the right thing. And here's the right thing. Stay safe. Protect each other. Love each other. Care for each other. you got so many ways to show that. But don't get together this Christmas. Thank you. Okay. 
So I don't know what the worst part of that is. I don't know if it's Brian Palliser's martyr complex, if it's him choking up as he tells everyone that he is the leader they all need, or if it's him calling people idiots in the same breath as saying we're all in this together. I, listen to this. I want you to listen to the gap. It wasn't even a full second between one and the other. If you don't think that COVID's real, right now you're an idiot. You need to understand that we're all in this together. You cannot fail to understand this. We're all in this together, you morons. That's basically the Brian Pallister message when it comes to 2020. Now, listen, I am all for the understanding that politicians have had to make tough calls and that in many cases it may not bring them any joy or delight to do it. But let's be perfectly frank here. You are not the hero when you have to tell everyone that you're the hero. And more importantly, you're not a hero to the people who are literally being charged by police at the direction of you, at the direction of your government, for the supposed crimes of working and worshipping. These things are illegal and non-essential for a great many people in Manitoba right now, so I'm not going to buy into this myth that Brian Pallister is peddling that he's the real victim here. The I'm the guy that's stealing Santa Claus, oh woe is me. And I mean, he's trying to do this sort of faux stoicism to deflect from the people whose livelihood has been thrown into a lurch because of him. Because of him taking a course of action that not only has not been proven, but has actually been disproven. All of the data available are showing that lockdowns do not work, which is why we are in the place that we are in right now. Lockdowns are not effective. So for him to do the most overzealous lockdown in Canada... This is not something that will have a net positive consequence. I saw a satirical article this week that made me chuckle. Pallister closes province after Manitoba deemed non-essential. That was in the Screaming Goose, which is a newer a satirical publication that so far I'm seeing is uh, pretty darn funny. And look, I mean, no offense to people in Manitoba, but if this is what passes for good governance there, yeah, there might be some truth to that idea of the province being declared non-essential. Certainly we can declare Brian Pallister non-essential, and then we wouldn't have to deal with these overdramatic pieces. You know, just in time for the Oscars. I read this week that the Oscars are still going ahead with their in-person telecast. So maybe Brian Pallister is looking for a last-minute nomination or something. Who knows? And, you know, the idea of lockdown versus liberty is one that, all joking aside, needs to be understood as being the real battleground for politics right now. And I think every conservative politician needs to be doing what Jason Kenney is doing, which is standing up and, and saying, listen, we are not going to lock ourselves down into success. We're not going to lock ourselves down into victory against the pandemic, against COVID-19. And I asked Aaron O'Toole last week, Week about this. He had a, a press conference. He was talking about a number of things. And I, I asked him this question, and I want you to listen to the response. Good morning, Mr. O'Toole. In the last week, we've had a pastor, an Ontario legislator, and, and numerous other Canadians ticketed for attending anti-lockdown protests uh, across the country. And I, I'm wondering what your thought is on, on these actions by, by law enforcement officials and, and by provincial governments. Well, as you know, I think it's important for all Canadians to heed the advice of public health authorities. I mentioned that in my remarks here, Andrew. I think that that's one of the accomplishments that the that Canadians can be proud of over the last uh, 10, 11 months. Our country has 
has rallied around some of the advice from public health officials, from elected officials, and we must continue to do that. At the same time, I've also said we need to give Canadians even more information. I've been asking the Prime Minister this. I suggested this to Dr. Tam in one of my briefings. We need to allow Canadians to make even smarter decisions. Where, where are transmissions taking place so that they can guard themselves? We've, we've now practiced distancing, mask usage, hand washing and other things, which were the early direction in the pandemic. We need to equip and trust Canadians with more information on that transmission point because that will allow us to keep potentially more economic activity going. That will allow Canadians to be even more prepared to avoid the transmission risk in certain circumstances. And I, I appreciated that Dr. Tam took, took, my, uh, took my question, my advice, and I would like to see that more common because I think Canadians need more information, not less. Now, I know O'Toole has been dragged a fair bit online for that, and I I think with good reason, because there was not an answer in that. There was not a response to that in the question. And and listen, I know Aaron O'Toole is a new leader. He's been on the job for 100 days right now. But I would like to see conservative politicians unafraid to stand up and say, listen, it is possible to both take the virus seriously while also not legitimizing this incredibly coercive and ineffective approach that the enforcement-minded people have have taken. And that, I think, is a completely defensible position and one that people need to own, one that people need to stand up to say, yeah, you know what? This is just plain wrong. I spoke on Monday about the criminalization of everything, the criminalization of a pastor, a politician, and a barbecue restaurant owner as being the emblems of this idea that's going on right now, the lockdown mentality. And the level of misinformation that's gone around about these incidents since uh, my show, not because of my show, but just since that uh, time and those stories, is pretty ridiculous, including people trying to say that, well, you know, Randy Hillier wasn't charged for dissenting with the government or protesting. He was charged for attending a mass gathering as though that was not, in fact, the protest. But take a look at this tweet. This was from Toronto Police in response to a a criticism from right-wing MBZ. Now, I I don't know right-wing MBZ, or maybe it's just MBZ, but I don't know. A right-wing MBZ uh, had, (laughs) had gotten a good answer out of Toronto Police here about the ticketing of Randy Hillier. And Toronto police said each case would have to be investigated differently, yada, yada, yada. It's not an offense to attend a protest so long as you adhere to social distancing laws or have an exemption. Randy Hillier was charged for organizing the protest. So what Toronto police are saying here is that you're allowed to go to a protest but you can't organize a protest that people could go to. So if a protest just comes about organically, that's fine. If you show up at one, that's fine. If Randy Hillier were to go to a neighboring protest, then he'd be good, but he can't go to his own. So the only answer I can think of to this is uh, just to have dueling protests set up where, you know, let's say Randy Hillier does a protest in uh, one block and then a few blocks over someone else does a protest, but they only show up to each other's. They don't show up to their own. I don't know if they still get ticketed for uh, organizing a protest. But the absurdity of this, that you have a right to assemble, you have the right to free speech, you can go to one, but you can't plan one. 
So it means that what the government is trying to do here is say that you don't have the right to have them. You don't have the right to to be there. It, I mean, because again, if they're trying to say that no one should be allowed to create something for you to attend, they're really trying to say they don't want you to attend. They just know it's not going to look good if they come in and start ticketing absolutely anyone and everyone under the sun, which it's increasingly looking like is happening in a broader context here. Manitoba had in the span of just one week, last week, a hundred $181,000 worth of fines issued. Some of those were for not adequately enforcing social distancing in the store. Some were not forcing people to wear a mask. There were any number of reasons, but the reality is $181,000 taken from businesses who, again, have had to shut down or have had to severely restrict their operations. And the idea that we are now going after these businesses who have very little discretionary cash lying around and are saying, Saying, oh, you know, that's $5,000 to old uh, Brian Pallister's uh, enforcement officers there. 5000 bucks. That's what a lot of these fines are going for, which is just absolutely asinine in a province that is, I don't even know if Manitoba is pretending it stands up for business right now, but in a country where we should all be standing up for business, it is just despicable. And listen, I know it's not in Canada, but I, I want to just put into perspective some of the things that are happening here. Because in New York, there was a story where a bar owner who defied coronavirus restrictions was arrested. Now, that in and of itself is bad. But if you look at what happened, police decided to stage a sting operation. So they sent undercover officers into Max Public House on Staten Island. Uh, they all just, you know, pretended they were having a good old time. They ordered food, they ordered drinks, and then... Uh, uh, you know, talk about uh, talk about a great bill at the end of it because uh, the you know the guy realizes that he's now been charged. The people he's been serving were actually partaking in an undercover investigation, a secret operation. This is not where you want law enforcement's priorities to be. Now we're talking about New York City here. I believe there were probably some other criminal actions taking place at the same time that might have taken priority. I don't know if they had the you know the big NYPD surveillance van parked around the street. I don't know how many people were involved in the operation, but suffice it to say, one is too many. One is too many to have in something like this. But this is now the priority. We're, we're now just transforming our culture into this snitch culture. As I joked last week, we went from we're all in this together to uh, snitch on your neighbors. And now the new one from Brian Pallister, we're all in this together, you idiots, uh, which is actually my favorite. That's the bumper sticker for 2020. We're all in this together, you idiots. <laughs> and you could just, and there's something for everyone in that line, I assure you, not just for Pallister, but I get a bit of joy out of it as well. But this is now what's happening. So Max Public House, their whole thing was, I thought, pretty great. They had declared themselves an autonomous zone. So they had, remember Ch when Chaz was around, the autonomous zone, uh, not Chaz Bono, the autonomous zone out in, in the West Coast, uh, where they were deciding to just basically allow the anarchists to run the show for uh, a few days, which is why it didn't work, because these people can't actually run anything. But police just retreated. Police put their hands up, walked back. The politicians were saying, we don't want to uh, challenge this. So uh, the bar decided it would declare itself an autonomous zone. And, and again, I think that's a novel idea, a good way to skirt lockdown. Didn't work, as we learned from the police doing the undercover investigation there and the operation. There was also in the UK a tequila bar that decided it would do uh, what I thought was, again, quite novel, apply for church status. So uh, not that I, I view tequila as necessarily a form of worship, but they decided that, hey, if bars are non-essential and churches are essential, this bar thing 
thing isn't working out for us right now, so why don't we try being a church? I'm not sure if their status has been approved or denied yet, but but this is what it's coming to. And these cases are amusing. They're silly for sure, but they're, re- they're reiterating, I think, a very genuine problem, which is that these people are kind of desperate right now. They don't have other options available to them when the state just keeps saying, no, you cannot be a business. You cannot govern yourself. You cannot run your operations, despite the fact that these places are not the problem. The cases, the transmissions are not coming from bars and restaurants. Take a look at London, Ontario this past week. I know it's my own city, but a lot's been happening here. There was an outbreak and multiple outbreaks actually at the hospital. And the people being blamed for this are staff, are are a lot of nurses and people working in the hospital who uh, decided they were going to get together on different floors, have a potluck or something like that. And I know people that work at the hospital. I don't think that uh, it's important or good to vilify uh, healthcare workers or any frontline workers. But uh, for all of the people in businesses in Ontario that have been told, I know you can't have your restaurant, you can't have your bar, you can't have your church service the way you want it. And now here we have the essential healthcare workers who are responsible for outbreaks in a hospital in multiple units. And the point of that is to say that, listen, the places that are being scapegoated are not the problems. We're going to talk about the vaccines when we come back here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. So this is, I realize, a polarizing topic to the audience here. So I'm interested in hearing what you think about it. And that is the COVID-19 vaccine that is being rolled out uh, basically everywhere in the world except in Canada right now. That's kind of uh, what we're seeing. The UK is uh, sending it out, I think, within the next couple of days. The US is going to have it within the next couple of weeks. Canada will have it at some point by the end of 2021, maybe, if we're lucky. That's basically the takeaway from this. Now, I know there are a lot of people that are skeptical of the vaccine, and I know there are a lot of people that are skeptical of the government, and when you have the government, which is responsible for acquiring and rolling out the vaccine, and not particularly doing a good job, I get it. Here's the thing. I am pro-vaccine. I am anti-mandatory vaccine. I think those are entirely reconcilable positions. I will have no issues taking a COVID-19 vaccine, but I would never in a million years force other people to do it. And that's a position we need to see more of, which is just saying, hey, I trust other people to make decisions that are right for them. And the whole nature of vaccinations is that if it's important to you, you get it. If it's important to you, you get it and you protect yourself if that's what you're after. So the idea of taking aim at people who want to ensure it remains voluntary I don't buy into, and this is what's happening with a a petition that Derek Sloan, former conservative leadership candidate, put forward. Now, by the way, when an MP tables a petition, a lot of the time it's not necessarily a reflection of that MP's view. It may be. Sometimes it's just that a constituent handed an MP this big giant petition and they say, okay, I'm going to do my job. And that's been an excuse that the Green Party and the NDP have used whenever they've been caught tabling uh, kind of wacky petitions. But in this particular case, the petition looks at a number of things connected to a COVID-19 vaccine, raises issues about the rushed nature of it, the fact that some manufacturers are being granted legal immunity, the fact that the long-term adverse effects may not be known for years. The petition calls on the government to say that it preserves and protects legal, ethical, and moral right to inform consent, legally ensure vaccines are voluntary, 
require that safety studies comply with standards, create a committee with stakeholder representatives, and, and so on and so forth, and develop a vaccine injury compensation program. So even if you disagree with some of the preambulatory clauses of this, such as uh, the safety issues or whatever the case may be, all this petition is really calling for is, hey, make sure they're safe, make sure they're voluntary. And those are things that are, are not or should not be controversial. But again, the, the, the amount of people that are now pushing towards something that is looking like a push for mandatory vaccination is pretty concerning. But at the same time, I'm also of the mind that if people want this, they should have it available to them. And it's a tremendous failure on the part of the Canadian government that this isn't happening. The goalposts keep moving. Look at what Seamus O'Regan tweeted the other day. He said, every Canadian will have access to an effective and free vaccine once it's ready. Yeah, the operative clause of that is the once it's ready because the government just put all of its eggs in one basket and that was the CanSino project, which ended up going nowhere. The real success has come from Pfizer, from Moderna, from Johnson & Johnson. That one's a little bit lagging behind. But the Chinese-Canadian vaccine project went nowhere, but that was pretty much the entirety of the Trudeau government's vaccine plan. So now we're left with our tail between our legs without the vaccine that everyone else in the world is getting. And we're supposed to be happy that as the Moderna CEO or uh, spokesperson said, we're not at the back of the line. Well, gee, but I mean, second last doesn't seem like anything to celebrate. Meanwhile, listen to what the Americans are getting. What is your expectations come June for how many Americans will have had this vaccine? 100% of Americans that want the vaccine will have had the vaccine by that point in time. We will have over 300 million doses available to the American wow. public well before then. Everyone in the United States who wants it by June will have had it. That is the vaccine czar, the Operation Warp Speed leader in the United States. Now, maybe it takes a month or two extra, extra from that. It's government. You have to allow for a buffer. But we're talking about a, generally speaking, pretty successful and well-planned rollout that in Canada right now simply does not exist. And Brian Lilly, I have to point this out, in the Toronto Sun had a, a great story about this, about Canada's own rollout. And he found in a planning document signed by Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance, and obtained by the Sun, that uh, Canada has announced agreements with seven leading vaccine manufacturers to procure enough doses to potentially immunize all Canadians against COVID-19 by the end of 2020. So 2021. So there's a lot in that, both the potentially and the end of 2021 part, which contradicts what the government has said in some cases, which is that we'll start getting stuff by early 2021, but then it's like that will just be minimal and we shouldn't be too excited. You've got provinces lining up to say, hey, we're ready to receive it. We're here. We're open. And then nothing's coming. So this is starting to be an absolute gong show. And I don't think this is what is keeping with the government's desire to tell Canadians it's been on top of this. And I mean, just look at the kind of abdication of responsibility that's taking place here. So you've got this one story that says uh, the military is saying it will be ready to deploy vaccines as soon as they're approved by Health Canada. But it's not about Health Canada's approval as much as it's about delivery, because the first doses will account for, they say, just 3 million Canadians in the first three months of 2021. But there still hasn't been a plan distributed that deals with exactly who's getting it first, who's getting it second, who's who's getting it third, how it's going to be accessed and distributed. And again, there's a big question mark about whether those numbers will actually come about. 
I would be very surprised if 3 million people have vaccine doses in the first three months of 2021, given everything we've learned, unless someone can pull a rabbit out of their hat, but I don't think that's coming from the Trudeau government. But I go back to this important point here, which is that the reason I'm comfortable taking it is because I want to get on with my life. And I understand there is a limiting factor to that right now and that a lot of the world is going to be structured around vaccines. Now, that will be the issue for a lot of people is that even if we do not have state mandated vaccines, we will have culturally mandated vaccines. And that's something that I agree is a risk. I mean, we already had the Qantas CEO a few weeks ago saying that they may make vaccinations mandatory. Britain has this bizarre thing called a freedom pass where they may allow people who can prove they've gotten negative tests to go and do things that they want in their life without being subject to lockdown. Well, it would be conceivable that something could happen where a vaccine, proof of vaccination, became a freedom pass of sort in, in countries that don't care about protecting your privacy and don't care about your rights. And that's going to be an issue. And I don't know how we navigate that, but the way we navigate it is not by just resisting for the sake of resisting. And that's the challenge. So I defend the right of people who don't want to get vaccinated to make that call, but I also withhold my own right to say, yeah, I'm okay with it. But right now I'm going to use that right to point at Justin Trudeau and say, how on earth have you bungled this so much when you've had nine months? You've had nine months, you've known this is coming, yet here we are, and we're supposed to believe and accept that this is the way things are supposed to be, all for the Prime Minister who told us Canada's back. Yeah, way, way, way back. That's how far back Canada is. Up next, going to be talking about healthcare, non-COVID healthcare. Yeah, these things are still happening. People dying on waiting lists in Canada, in a country where the government tells you it's got your back. We'll talk about that with Colin Craig from Second Street in just a couple of moments here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So obviously we've been talking a, a fair bit this show and in the past several months about COVID and its effect on, on healthcare, but issues that existed before the pandemic and will continue to exist after are still very much going on. And one of the big ones, which we have talked about on the show in the past, is the issue of wait times, healthcare wait times, not just in, in isolated provinces, but across the country. This was put into sharp focus by a report that was just put out this week by Second Street, died on a waiting list, a name that I think is exactly as blunt as it needs to be here. The report's author, Colin Craig, the Second Street president, joins me on the line now. Colin, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. Now, one thing that I think is important to put into perspective here before we delve into the story that's being told, this is not waitlist to do with COVID. This is a, an issue that existed before the pandemic, correct? That, that's correct. The data that uh, we obtained was from the 2018-19 fiscal year. And what's the story here? I mean, what's actually happening? Well, we've certainly heard for, for many years now, Andrew, cases where patients uh, sadly have passed away while waiting for surgery. Uh, you know, one very uh, uh, popular, well-known example from Ontario was uh, Laura Hillier, a young 18-year-old girl. She was fighting cancer. She had a bone marrow donor uh, lined up and ready to go. A surgeon was ready, but the government hadn't rationed enough funding for healthcare to get her that uh, surgery in a timely manner. So she ended up waiting seven months. Sadly, she passed away. 
And, uh, you know, stories like that that are, are pretty heartbreaking. We thought, well, how big is this problem in Canada? So we filed freedom of information requests with health regions and hospitals across the country, uh, just asking for data. How many surgeries have been canceled because the patient has passed away? Um, and we also sought some additional information. And we ended up finding that there were 1,480 cases where patients died in that one year because uh, they were on, well, they were on a waiting list. And that figure uh, came from hospitals and health regions that cover less than half of Canada's population. So if you extrapolate it across the country, the real figure is probably closer to around 4,000. So this is important to note here that we have in, in your numbers almost 1,500, but not at all exhaustive as far as the, the country or the hospitals in the country are concerned. How easy was it for you to get these figures? Were hospitals uh, trying to block this? Because I, I know FOIs, Freedom of Information Requests, are, are oftentimes hit or miss when dealing with a lot of sensitive figures, which I think are important. Yeah, it, it was actually pretty challenging because, uh, first of all, a lot of hospitals and health regions, they just don't even track it which seems in incredible in its own right that they're not tracking data on why particular procedures are being cancelled. I, I would think it would be important to know if the patient had died, especially if they had died longer than the medically recommended maximum waiting period. But that was the case, uh, you know, 29 out of 50 health bodies that we contacted just simply said they don't have the data. And then the ones that did have the data, sometimes they had good data, which was pretty uncommon. Um, and then a lot of them just kind of had like little dribs and drabs of data, but they were able to tell us the, the number. So there's really a lot of room for improvement here. I know it's difficult with that uh, sometimes spotty data to uh, really understand the whole story, but I, I want to see, I mean, as much as you can, are we talking about cases here where that surgery would have saved someone's life? Because we, we know there, there are situations, however rare they might be, where someone could on Monday be put on a wait list for a hip replacement and on Wednesday they get into a car accident and die or, or something like that, whereas the cause of death might not have been prevented or even related. Do we know or do we have the ability to know how many of these surgeries could have or, or would have had an impact in the death. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And we do uh, discuss that a bit in the report because it is important. Uh, and I don't want to leave your viewers with the wrong impression. We're not seeing that all 1,480 of these people died because they didn't receive surgery uh, in a, a, a fairly quick amount of time. That's that's not true. Um, the, the types of surgeries that people were waiting for ranged from procedures that could have saved their life uh, to procedures where it would affect their quality of life. So it'd be everything from, say, some kind of uh, heart procedure um, to something like getting your hip or knee done. So, you know, you may not die because you don't get your hip or knee done in a, a, a fast uh, or short period of time, but it would certainly affect your quality of life if you're stuck for the final year or two or three or whatever it is of your life, stuck in your apartment, living in immense pain because you haven't received hip surgery or, or knee surgery. I mean, that, that's certainly disturbing, too. Did you find that there were any particular provinces that had a better or worse record on this? Or, or was it really more uh, specific to individual uh, hospital uh, groups or individual hospitals and, and kind of a, a patchwork across the country? Yeah, it's, it, it's really hard to compare because the data was just, to be blunt, really bad. Uh, governments have very poor data in this area. Um, Nova Scotia actually had very good data. And uh, their numbers were not good. There were, I, I believe, it was over 400 uh, patient deaths uh, during that one year while, while they were waiting uh, for surgery. And in most cases, they had waited longer than the maximum medically recommended time period. So the, 
the uh, the numbers weren't good from Nova Scotia, but the quality of the data was good. So I think, uh, you know, if any province that had poor data we or is looking for someone to copy, we would say, well, look at what Nova Scotia is doing, because they at least have good data. When you have good data, you can understand where the problems are and you improve accountability for the public. And and one other thing I would note for your, your uh, viewers is that the amount of time that patients waited, it really ranged. In some cases, they had only been on the waiting list for a short period of time. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, some patients had been on the waiting list for more than eight years. And those were a couple outliers, but it, it goes to show you that there's a real range in terms of how long people were waiting before they passed away. Was there a median or, or at least a, a kind of a, a general area of where a lot of them fell as far as wait times go? You know, again, that that too is it's hard to calculate because in many cases we just we weren't even given those numbers. Um, and in some provinces, the the numbers that we got, we know that they were lowballed. So early on, we asked uh, the Alberta Health uh, for data on uh, hips and knees, and they said, "Well, here's the data. These are the numbers that we've got." But we would note that in many cases, uh, you know, it's just simply not tracked. It's not always kept. That data is not always kept carefully. Uh, some systems may not have that option, so it could be within one province where you have some procedures where when you're entering in the cancellation cause, it, there is an option for noting that the patient passed away, and then for some other procedure there may not might not be. So there, I think governments would really do well to standardize and start tracking this information and disclosing it. And one of the things that we point out, which is really crazy if you think about it, some provincial governments will require private businesses to report and disclose workplace accidents that are pretty minor. So there's one example from BC where you could go on the government's website and see, read about how a, a private business had an accident, a worker fell and had some bruising. So that's their threshold for businesses is you have to report on bruising and yet you have patients dying in the healthcare system and there's no disclosure. It's not something that governments report on proactively each year. So what we've kind of pointed to is, hey, governments, you know, if, if you would meet the same standard that you expect private businesses to meet, it would be uh, very helpful, I think, for patients and researchers and people who want to address these problems. And it's actually a really interesting point you raised, because when I started reading the report, it seemed like the big conclusions were going to be about how to make the healthcare system better, which is still a big part of it. But it was amazing how data collection became one of the key takeaways as well. And you see that near the end of the report where, you know, to really tackle a problem, you have to have the numbers on it. And if you don't have that, it makes it very difficult to get a lot of stakeholders, notably politicians, to agree that there is a problem here. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it, it's mind boggling that, you know, some health bodies would just not consider it important to track, uh, you know, why it was that these cancellations occurred, like, you know, especially from a customer service perspective. I mean, we as taxpayers are the customers. Isn't the provider, the government concerned if they're not doing a good job, if they're getting to, around to providing surgery after we've died. And in, in one case we highlight in the report, there was a patient from uh, Quebec, he's 72 years old. He needed heart surgery within two to three months. He ended up lasting five months on a government waiting list before he passed away. And then according to media reports, a few months after he passed away, the government phoned him to schedule his surgery. So, I mean, the stories wow. like that, it's just it's crazy, and I think we really need to do a better job in this country when it comes to tracking this information and uh, uh, figuring out where the problems are. 
Yes, and I would say that one important point here, and, and you note this in the report, is that we live in a country in which healthcare is rationed by government. And a lot of the times people talk about it being delivered by government, but that also means it's rationed by government. And we know that at the best of times, we've had issues with empty ORs just because hospitals have burned through their allotment. And, and typically a lot of those are on procedures that are, again, more about quality of life, like knee surgeries, than, than they are about emergency life-saving procedures. But even so, and this year, it would be very interesting to see what happens because this year we know that uh, anything deemed elective was canceled by most hospitals across the country. And, and you got to wonder, I mean, how many people were on wait lists that would have had potentially fatal consequences or at the very least, as you note earlier, quality of life consequences? Yeah, and I, you've touched on a very important point. And uh, because of COVID, thousands of procedures were postponed across the country. So you have your natural demand is building all the time because we have an aging population and it's a reality that as you get older, you tend to require more services. So you have that demand increasing naturally. And at the same time, we have all these postponed procedures that are being put on top. So there's a huge backlog right now in the healthcare system. I, I would bet it's bigger than ever. Um, so it, sadly, we're probably going to see these numbers go up where more people are going to be waiting in pain during their final years, they're going to be struggling. They're not going to be getting the care that they need before they pass on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really sad situation. We're talking about everyday people, their lives, you know, people that struggle with walking across the room because they're living with hip pain that's so severe. They're ending up with other health problems because maybe they're on uh, uh, T3s because they're to address their pain. And then a year later, they end up with liver problems because the government's made them wait so long and, and rely on uh, pain medication. So there's all these problems that really are happening to, to everyday people. And I think we, more than anything right now, I think this is, it should be a priority for governments to figure out, uh, to uh, focus on health reform rather than, you know, these ideas of a great reset and everything else that's being talked about right now. Yeah, and I know it goes away from this particular report, so I hope you'll indulge me for a moment, Colin, but I, I know when you and I last spoke, it was about a, a previous Second Street report that looked at cross-border healthcare, so people that were in Canada, specifically in border communities, but elsewhere as well, that were going into the United States for uh, medical treatment and medical care, and, and it's I'd be interested to see if it's possible to quantify this or track this, how many people that would have done that this year couldn't because of the border closure and the effect that would have on healthcare, because because naturally there are people in this country that are deselecting from Canadian waitlist by going outside of the country, which is still technically possible with air travel. But for a lot of people that would have just picked up and gone from, you know, Abbotsford to Bellingham or would have gone from Sarnia to Port Huron. I mean, that option hasn't been taken off the table. So you've got really this two pronged issue of, of losing some domestic options for care and losing that ability to go abroad for travel. Yeah or for healthcare rather. I, I think that's a huge problem. And there was a media report from uh, New York State actually, where they looked at that and they talked about how some Canadians were having trouble getting across the border there. In one case, there was a, a cancer patient who was trying to go from Ontario to, to uh, New York and uh, received some kind of a, a treatment. And that patient had two family members with them and they had to stop I, I believe what happened was they got to the border and they were told they could only have one family member. So then they had to like drive to a 
a Walmart or something, drop the family member. <laughs> throw throw grandma out in Buffalo or uh, I guess on the other side in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Dump, and say, sorry, we'll pick you up on the way back. Dump on your family. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly tough. If you, know, if you think about it from their perspective, right? Like if you're, you're not getting the care that you need or that you feel that you need in Canada, you're having to go across the border. That's going to cause all kinds of anxieties as it is. Throw COVID on top. And then you're having to like leave a family member at the last minute unplanned. It's, it, it, it's one of those problems where I think you really have to go back to the root and say, well, why is it that this person's having to leave their own country for healthcare? Why don't they have the freedom to try to improve their care with their own money in their own country? I mean, no other country on the planet does this where we have this system that says, yeah, we're going to force you to, in many cases, wait a long time for the procedure that you need. And no, you can't do anything about it. You either have to leave the country or you have to take what we're going to give you. It's it's pretty incredible what, what goes on in this country compared to what's happening in other countries when it comes to healthcare. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I don't want to bog people down too much in the legal arguments because we know there is the, the Camby case, which will be going towards the Supreme Court at, at some point and, and all of these. But for a lot of people, it's just they don't care about the politics of it. It's, they want health care. And you know what? They're told that it's going to be there for them. And when it's not, that's a that's a failing of the system. If you're going to monopolize it, you have to deliver. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that so often at the end of the day, no matter where you are on the spectrum or where you are on this issue, once it hits your family, you do whatever you can to try to help your loved ones, as mm -hmm. so many of us would, right? Like you you do what you can if your son or your daughter is sick or a mom or a dad or whatever, you do what you can to help. And when you talk to guys like you mentioned the Camby case, Brian Day was the, the plaintiff in that case, he'll tell you that he's had people across the political spectrum in his clinic. He's had people that are, I, I think, even fighting him in court that will come in because they don't want to wait to get their knee done or whatever. Like, it's it's just incredible, our approach to healthcare in this country and how different it is from the rest of the world. And we see that many other countries are providing better services for a lower cost. They have a public system. They have private options. They're doing better. And yet in Canada, we just kind of have this tunnel vision so often where we don't want to talk about those options. The the opponents of change will always try to create this discussion of either we've got Canada system or the US system. They don't want yeah. people to realize that say Australia is doing better, New Zealand's doing better, all these countries around the world that still have what I think Canadians value, which is having that public system, but also having private options on the side. The report is Died on a Waiting List, came out just this past week with SecondStreet.org. President and report author Colin Craig joins me on the line. Colin, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Appreciate it. All right, that was Colin Craig from Second Street, and that does it for me. We'll be back in just a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.